Lord, we do thank you for your mercy, uh, a mercy that flows down to us because of the gospel, because of the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We do not deserve all the kindness, all the goodness that you have shown us. That is the definition of mercy. You are a gracious and a compassionate God. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so we praise you this morning for who you are and for all that you have done for us. And this, this morning, as, as school has, has started back up in the past week here in, in Rapid City, here in our community, we pray uh, for all those in our church who are teachers, all those who are school staff, daycare workers, uh, just those who are teaching and caring uh, for the children uh, here in our community. We pray you would give them strength, give them energy uh, to deal with uh, these, uh, all these kids of, of, of all ages. Um, we pray that you would give them wisdom in their teaching in the ways that they uh, shape the minds and the hearts of students. We pray you'd give them opportunities to show the love of Jesus and also uh, opportunities to be able to speak of who, who you are and what you have done uh, in their lives. And we pray in particular for, for Rapid City Christian and for Calvary Christian uh, and we pray for those schools that you would particularly uh, help them and empower them not only to, to teach all of the academics that their students need that is required, pray you would also help them to faithfully teach the truth of Scripture and to teach uh, the glorious gospel of your Son, that they would not only uh, be providing an education, but they would be uh, partnering with Christian parents, with churches, to help disciple young people. We thank you for the safe return of our Tanzania team. Uh, thank you for just all the opportunities that they had during their time. We, we thank you for the relationships that were formed, for all of the ministry and teaching that took place, the medical work, just uh, all the, the wonderful fruit uh, that came out of that trip. Thank you for their efforts, their sacrifices uh, to make that happen. Thank you for all the church uh, and the way that they supported and helped to make that possible. We pray for that team in the coming days, in the coming weeks, just for that experience of, of re-entry into uh, normal life back here. We pray you'd help them to get good rest, to recover from jet lag. We also pray you would just help them to adjust to life here in the U.S. and just navigating the, the culture shock after spending over two weeks in just a very different culture, a very different setting, uh, just so aware of, of the needs and, uh, and now the distance um, between here and there. Just uh, help them in navigating all that and give them uh, in the coming days just the wisdom and the grace to be able to effectively process all that they've experienced and then to be able to communicate uh, about the
those experiences with, with us, with this church, and with others in a way that is, that is faithful and helpful and just helps to, uh, just to advance uh, your kingdom and give you the glory. And we pray for us now, for South Canyon Baptist Church, as we prepare to hear from your word. We pray you would be at work in us and among us. And as I conclude this Second Timothy series, I pray simply that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What do you think of when you hear the word mission? You know, generally speaking, a mission is, is an important job that someone is, is given to do. Of course, in, in, a, in military settings, a mission usually involves traveling somewhere, perhaps across the globe, um, to accomplish an assigned task. It could be a secret mission, right? It could, uh, it could require special uh, skills, uh, special training, knowledge. But the word can mean more than merely a job. With mission, there can be a sense of, of value assigned to it. Maybe it's something that you feel you must do because it's, it's your duty, it's your calling. Now, as Christians, mission has a unique meaning because for the Christian, mission means going to a foreign country or, or reaching across cultural barriers to tell people about Jesus Christ. So we just had, as we, as we just prayed for, a, a team of our members here from this church who were on a mission trip to Tanzania for over two weeks. Now, for, for all of these reasons, uh, it can be very meaningful when a mission is completed. Of course, on the other hand, as, as one American president learned this lesson, it's unwise to prematurely claim that the mission is completed. That can come back, uh, come, come back to bite you. But a mission could just be one individual's sense of calling, or it could belong to an entire group and an organization. Usually, a mission is going to require support. There are going to be people and resources assigned toward the effort. And then often, when, when perhaps one team leader, one mission leader or a commander moves on or retires, then that mission is handed over to another. So the mission continues even though the personnel might change. Well, we've come to the very end of the letter of 2 Timothy. This is, was written by the Apostle Paul to young pastor Timothy. And this is Paul giving final instructions for the church in a future without him. And so the whole letter, and especially this passage we're going to look at today, is really all about mission. Paul has come to the end of his assignment. And now it's time to hand that mission over to Timothy and to others who will continue the mission, the great mission to preserve and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to read through uh, the end of 2 Timothy in chapter 4, you know, verses 6 through 22. It's on page 996 in our blue pew Bibles. But hear these final words from the Apostle Paul. Listen to God's word. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So the Apostle Paul has completed the mission Jesus gave him. And yet, the greater mission continues as Paul hands it over to gospel partners who have faithfully served by his side. So, as we walk through this passage, uh, just in, basically in three sections, we're going to look first, those opening verses 6 through 8, at the mission accomplished. And then, in the middle, verses 9 through 18, we're going to look at mission support. And then finally, verses 19 through 22, the mission handover. So first of all, in verses 6 through 8, the mission accomplished. Paul has a clear sense here that the end is near for him. And so first there in verse 6, he uses an analogy of being poured out as a drink offering. This was something that was part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. You'll see all throughout uh, the the Old Testament law. It's it's a vivid picture of, of giving up one's life as an act of worship. So it's like it's being compared to to wine, being poured out from a bowl or a pitcher onto the altar. And Paul says he's already being poured out. So he he views this event as already having begun. And then he also says the time of his departure has come. This word departure really has to do, uh, the the Greek word has to do with with being unloosed. Like, like, a tent that's being taken down or, or a boat that's being untied in order to, to set sail for a distant shore. But as, as Paul sees his departure is imminent, the remarkable thing is that he has such a strong sense of completion. The mission that Jesus gave him has been accomplished. And he makes this clear with, 
with three separate statements in verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. All three of those are in the past tense. So Paul can look back and say his task has been completed. Mission accomplished. And what was that mission for Paul? Well, you know, we first learned about it back in in Paul's origin story, as it was, uh, back in Acts chapter 9, when when Saul of Tarsus, who was the persecutor of the church, of course, Saul of Tarsus also became known as Paul, but he had been knocked to the ground by a blinding light and spoken to by the risen Christ. And then the Lord instructed another disciple named Ananias to pray for Paul, and the Lord told Ananias about Paul's mission. In Acts 9.15, he said, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then similarly, Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So just look at Paul's three statements here, beginning with, I have fought the good fight. You know, earlier in this letter, in 2 Timothy 2.3, Paul told Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Well, Paul spent 30 years as a soldier of Christ whose sole aim was to please the master who enlisted him. And now he can say, I have fought the good fight. And then as we consider the second statement, I finished the race. You know, Paul really expands on this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul has, has disciplined himself He has pressed on toward the goal. And now at the end of his life, he can say, I have finished the race. And then finally, his statement, I have kept the faith. Back in 2 Timothy in chapter 2, Paul said to Timothy, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to to me, this gospel, this, this message of the truth. And then he tells Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so now again, at the end, Paul can confidently declare, I have kept the faith. By God's grace, Paul has guarded and protected what Jesus entrusted to him, the gospel, the good deposit, the word of truth, the faith. 
And it's just striking how all these things that Paul pursued as his purpose, these things that he, he ran after as his aim in life, all of them have been realized. As one commentator notes, what had been a purpose was now a retrospect. This is the result of Paul's strong determination. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he said that he worked harder than any of them, but it was the grace of God working in him. And what's, what's the result of this completion, this finishing the race, keeping the faith? Because he fulfilled this mission Christ gave him, he has a reward to look forward to. The crown of righteousness is waiting for him. He says, the Lord, the righteous judge, will award it to him on the final day. And this crown is waiting not only for Paul, but for every person who is loved, who has, who has eagerly awaited, who has set their heart on Christ's second coming. Now, considering the context and even Paul's other uh, writing, even in 1 Corinthians 9, about running in the race and receiving the crown, the wreath. It seems that this crown is a reward for believers who faithfully endure. You know, throughout the New Testament, the crown is promised to those who endure trials in Revelation 2.11 and in James 1.12. And then the victor's crown also belongs to athletes who finish the race according to the rules and are not disqualified. Paul even says earlier in 2 Timothy 2.5. But believers like Paul who persevere, who finish the race, they know it is completely a work of God's grace in them and through them. Even our heavenly reward is earned not by our human strength, but even, even our reward is earned by his gracious power working in us. And then one other thing just to make sure that this is really loud and clear for any listening today, no one earns their eternal righteous state. No one earns their place in heaven through good deeds. No one is justified by works. So in heaven, we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Whatever crown, whatever reward we might have, our place there. Our reservation is through the finished work of Christ alone. And that's why in Romans 5.17, Paul describes it as the free gift of righteousness. And in Philippians 3.9, he says he longs to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness from God, which comes through faith in Christ. So if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if you've never put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, I would, I would urge you to, to take that step today, to, to reach out in faith, to acknowledge your, your sin and your need of grace, and to trust in Jesus Christ. He died in the place of sinners. He took the penalty, the just penalty for sin upon himself, and by his sacrificial death on the cross and then his resurrection from the dead, he conquered sin and death. And so whoever trusts in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins, receives that gift of righteousness. 
and receives the promise of eternal life. And so if, if you want to know more about this gospel message, if you feel drawn to, to taking that step, I would just encourage you to talk to me, talk to one of the pastors or elders. We would love to, uh, to get with you, maybe study through a book of the Bible together, answer your questions, because nothing is more important. But Christian, we should be very much encouraged as we consider these truths. If you have been saved by grace, if you have set your heart on Christ's return, there is a crown of righteousness awaiting you. And the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Your love for his appearing, your, your eager longing for him to come back, that is an evidence of your justification. Your love for his appearing does not save you, but it is an evidence of the saving work of God in your life. As John Stott writes, only those who have entered by faith into the benefit of Christ's first coming are eagerly awaiting his second. And so, abide in Christ. Meditate on the gospel, on his grace toward you. Trust fully in the gospel. Live each day in light of the gospel. And look forward to his return. The return of Christ is when the crown is given to his disciples. It's when we are reunited with all the brothers and sisters who fought the fight of faith by our side. It's when the Lord brings justice to those who who had opposed and persecuted his church. And so eagerly await that day. Eagerly await your Savior's return. And that is how we endure till that day and receive our reward. So we've considered how, how Paul looked back and could say mission accomplished. In those first verses, 6 through 8, it was, it was a little bit more of a 30,000-foot view. In this next section, in verses 9 through 18, we really kind of get a little down into the weeds and we learn about Paul's very human experiences of need. So verses 9 through 18, we're looking at mission support. So first of all, we really see how Paul has a deep longing for companionship. He wants to see Timothy again before he dies. Back in the beginning of the letter, in, in chapter 1, verse 4, he, he said, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And so here in our passage in verse 9, he makes an urgent request for Timothy to come to him soon. And then further down in verse 21, he reminds him to try and come before winter. And I think those of us here in South Dakota can understand this. That is because travel through the Mediterranean, particularly when you're talking about sea travel, uh, just it would be impossible from November through March. So he needs to do it sooner rather than later. Part of the reason for Paul's loneliness is, we learn in verse 10, Demas, who previously in, in other places in Scripture had been called 
a fellow worker, he deserted Paul because of his love for this present world. And that really serves as a, as a sober warning and reminder. We need to be those who love his appearing, who eagerly await his return, our Savior's return. Because the alternative is we become more in love with this present world and we abandon our mission. We abandon those, those friends and ministry partners that we're meant to be supporting and helping to serve alongside. Now, other companions are mentioned here, Crescens, Titus, and Tychicus, and it seems that these men have left Paul for valid reasons. So it's not, it's not all wrong or bad, and, but yet Paul is mostly alone. So Tychicus here, um, twice in the New Testament, he is called by Paul a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. And so it seems likely that he actually was the one who had been tasked to deliver Paul's letters to the Ephesians and to the Colossians and to Titus. And then now, here in verse 12, Paul says he has sent him to Ephesus. And that's where Timothy is. So probably he's going to deliver to Timothy this one last letter for Paul. And then even to be able to take over at the church for Timothy so that Timothy can come and see Paul in Rome. And so in verse 11, Paul says that Luke alone is with him. Luke is Paul's loyal traveling companion. He's the author of the Gospel of Luke and, and Acts. And in Colossians 4.14, Paul describes him as the beloved physician. And even perhaps Luke is there with Paul as Paul is in prison, helping to care for Paul's physical ailments. But Paul asks as well for Timothy when he comes to bring Mark along, and he says, he's very useful to me for ministry. And again, there's just so many relationships, so much history of, of, of Paul's ministry uh, here, but this is really a beautiful picture of redemption and restoration. Because you see, back in Acts 13, and those of you who have been here a few years will remember when we preached through the book of Acts, but in Acts 13, Mark had deserted Paul and Barnabas during their first missionary journey. And this ended up becoming the occasion for these, these two great missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, to split and to part ways in Acts 15. Because at the time, Paul didn't think they should bring Mark with them again on another journey after he had kind of flaked out on them the time before. And yet now, years later, Mark has... We don't know all that's happened in the, in the interim, but Mark has restored his reputation with the apostle, and so Paul values him as a very useful ministry partner. But you see, not only does Paul really long for, for companionship and friendship and encouragement, but he is still reeling from painful hostility, betrayal, and abandonment. There in verse 14 this character, Alexander the coppersmith, is mentioned. And it says that he did Paul great harm. The, the literal translation of this phrase would be that Alexander informed many evil things against me. So it's, it's actually possible that Alexander had, had acted as an informer 
and gotten Paul arrested in this last arrest. Because Timothy's warned in verse 15, beware of him yourself. So again, if Timothy is going to have to come through Troas to pick up these, these items that Paul mentions in verse 13, the cloak and the books and parchments, it's possible that Paul had to leave those, those personal effects behind because he was in Troas when he was arrested without warning. And so that means when Timothy comes to Troas, he needs to steer clear of Alexander so that the same kind of thing doesn't happen to him. But Paul states that the Lord will repay Alexander according to his deeds and his, his strong opposition to their message, to the gospel. And this is really the same thing that Paul wrote in Romans twelve nineteen. Paul is not looking for Timothy to go after Alexander. He's not trying to send someone to get even. He leaves vengeance to God, as it says in Romans twelve nineteen. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But justice will come in the end to all who harm and persecute Christ's followers. But not only is there this pain of Alexander's betrayal of Paul, perhaps betraying him to the authorities, much like Judas betraying Jesus, but we also learn that Paul was abandoned at his preliminary trial. He says there, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. So in a Roman trial, Paul, especially as a Roman citizen, he would have been allowed to call witnesses and have someone advocate him, advocate for him, sort of like a, a lawyer or counsel, but no one in Rome was willing to come speak on his behalf or support him in that way. And so just like his Savior right there in the garden, everyone deserted him. But then just like his Savior, Paul prayed, may it not be charged against them. So not only does Paul long for the comfort of, uh, of the presence of faithful friends, but he also needs the, the very practical and real physical comfort of his cloak there in verse 13. Because winter is coming, and surely Paul's prison cell is, is damp and cold. And he also wants something to occupy his mind and keep him busy. And so he asks for these books and parchments we don't know exactly what these were. They may have included official documents or personal correspondence. Uh, could have been books of some kind, perhaps uh, an entire Greek Old Testament, or perhaps even early, early written copies of, of some of the words and teachings of Christ or stories of his life. But what we can learn from all of Paul's requests here and from his situation is that it's not unspiritual or sinful to be human and have needs. We were meant for human companionship. You know, it was God who said all the way back in Genesis 2, it is not good that the man should be alone. And then he also made us to exist with bodies that require food and clothing and shelter. And all those things are means that God uses to, to protect and to care for us. And they're good so we can enjoy them, we can share them 
with one another for God's glory. And God also made us in his image, not only as, as relational beings, but, but also creative and intelligent with minds that need to be active. And so we're, we're wired, we're meant to learn and read and think deeply about Scripture and other writings as well, and to, to study history or literature, to study the world that he's made so that we can, can gain wisdom and insight. So as my dad would often say, you know, don't try to be more spiritual than God. Pay attention to your body and to your mind. Take, take good care of them. Yes, Paul threw everything he had into his mission. He was single-minded. He finished his race. That is true. But it was a marathon, not a sprint. And Paul depended on God to supply those practical needs that he had, both through his own hard work as a craftsman, also through the generosity of others. Paul had deep affection and really meaningful relationships with his ministry partners and with the churches that he planted. And Paul loved a good debate. He would reason and debate in the synagogues and in the public square. He would even quote the Greek poets to make his point. So all this to say, as Paul pursued his mission, he was not by any means a one-dimensional person. He, he was witty. He could be sarcastic at times. He was a very intelligent, also compassionate, loving, and affectionate human being. And he needed that human companionship. He needed those practical, physical, and, and mental needs to be met. But even as he asks for the cloak and the books, even as he acknowledges how deeply he longs for human companionship, even as he acknowledges the acute pain of being abandoned by everyone around him, even when everything else fails, his Lord never fails. There in verse 17, these beautiful words, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul felt the Lord's presence and faithfulness. In his weakness, the power of Christ was at work all the more. And so Paul was able to fully proclaim the message so that all the Gentiles might hear it. His great ambition was realized to, to preach the gospel in Rome, to be able to, to preach before a Roman tribunal, maybe, maybe even before Caesar himself. And Paul can say, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. At least for now, maybe the immediate danger had passed, even though Paul still understood that his time was short. And his great confidence is that the Lord would rescue him from every evil deed. Now clearly this does not mean that he thinks he will escape death or suffering but he is confident that Jesus would preserve and keep him, even in death, and that he would bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. So Paul had accomplished his mission, and yet he had not done it without help. 
The Lord himself was with Paul and strengthened him. And the Lord also provided support in the form of faithful gospel partners. And so we come to these final verses, verses 19 through 22, and we see the mission handover. In these last four verses, Paul sends his final greetings and and benediction and signs off. Despite all the disappointments that Paul has suffered, he, he knows he has loyal friends there in Ephesus, not only Timothy, but others as well, and he sends them affectionate, personal greetings. So, so Prisca, or Priscilla, and her husband Aquila, these were Paul's fellow workers in Christ. And, and they first met Paul back in Corinth in, in, in Acts chapter 18. And this couple, they gave Paul a place to stay for, for a year and a half as he ministered there in Corinth. And they did, they did tent making together. They, they had this common trade uh, that, they, that they did. And so they, working together for all those months, enabled Paul to be able to support himself as he was preaching week in and week out at the synagogue. And then when Paul left Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila came with him and traveled with him to Ephesus. So then when Paul later writes back to the church in Corinth... In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul sends greetings from Aquila and Prisca, who are hosting a church in their house. So now they're in Ephesus. They followed Paul to Ephesus. Now there's a church meeting in their house in Ephesus. Perhaps they're still hosting the church where where Timothy is the pastor. We don't know. But these are just a wonderful, godly, wise couple who have been with Paul through thick and thin. He greets them. He greets Onesiphorus, who was mentioned again earlier in this letter in 2 Timothy 1.16. This was a faithful brother who had come to Rome to track down Paul after his arrest. He found him in his prison cell, and he in some way met his needs and encouraged him. And then Paul also gives Timothy a little update on a couple other associates. Erastus, this was another dependable disciple, He's mentioned in Acts 19 as one of Paul's helpers, and he had, he had uh, done ministry together with Timothy. Paul says Erastus remained in Corinth. So again, it could be possible here that after Paul was arrested, Erastus had traveled with him as far as Corinth and then remained behind there. Trophimus was also someone who traveled extensively with Paul on his missionary journeys, but here Paul had to leave him behind in Miletus because of sickness. But all these people, these are the kinds of gospel partners that Paul, not only does he have deep affection and love for them, but he also feels assured that they will carry on the gospel mission. And then he briefly, he sends greetings from four believers who were with him there in Rome. He lists these four people, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. And so since he knows them by name, we would assume that they, they had visited him there in prison. So despite the disappointment, despite the painful abandonment at his first trial, Paul is not without friends in Rome. Now again, as we consider the, the close, the, the, the very end of Paul's last letter here, I just want to make a brief charge for 
our elders and our deacons, our life group leaders, life class teachers, other Bible study teachers. And, and the charge is simply this, to be strategic about how you invest in future generations. Because you will not be here in your current role forever. Even, even before the Lord calls you home, as is, is happening here in Paul's situation, there just may be a time when you're no longer have the energy or the health to serve or to teach as you do now, or God may move you somewhere else for his kingdom purposes. But right now, are there men and women, are there young adults, students, who you are, are actively discipling, mentoring, and training? Are there brothers and sisters that, that you can recognize they may one day shoulder the responsibility to lead and teach and carry on the great gospel mission here at South Canyon Baptist Church? So we should be encouraged knowing that God is raising up other faithful disciples to, to come alongside us in the ministry here at this church. But we should also be challenged that we have a limited time to be able to invest in them and prepare them for greater responsibility in the future. And so finally, in verse 22, we come to the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul. He says, the Lord be with your spirit, and that is addressed to Timothy. The pronoun your is singular there. So he's saying, Timothy, my departure will be soon, but the Lord will be with you as he was with me. Everyone else deserted me. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will give you the strength you need. His strength is made perfect in weakness. My part of the mission has been accomplished. Now I hand the mission over to you and your fellow workers in Ephesus. Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be afraid of suffering or opposition, but continue. Continue in everything I taught you. And then the last four words, grace be with you. And now Paul is addressing the whole church because the you there is, is in the plural. This is grace be with you all. And so that shows us that the message of 2 Timothy, it's not just for Timothy. It's for Timothy's church because the entire body has a part to play in guarding the gospel and in carrying out the mission. And so what that means for us is 2 Timothy it's not just for pastors or elders. It is for every Christian. And Paul pronounces this benediction, grace be with you all. And how fitting is that? Because grace is the very heart of Paul's gospel. By grace you have been saved. By the grace of God I am what I am. His grace is sufficient for you. And so South Canyon Baptist Church, continue in the grace that saved you. Announce this gospel of grace to everyone without distinction. Love and serve one another in a spirit of grace. And do everything you do.
by the power of God's grace working in you and through you. You know, I don't know if, if Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners, if he and, and John Newton, the former slave trader, if they have met in glory, but if they did, I have no doubt that Paul would love the words of John Newton's great hymn, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what we have in the the pages of your word, and in particular, all all of the the writings, all of the stories, uh, really just the life of the Apostle Paul and seeing your grace at work through him, your faithfulness, his uh, passion and ambition and commitment. Uh, God, we thank you for that example. And we pray that, that like Timothy and like the early church, that we would take the baton and run with it. We just thank you for our time here uh, in this book, and we pray uh, that you would write uh, the truths that are contained there on our hearts. Empower us by your grace. May your grace be with all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.